So we're continuing with Basi Lagani Tavshimem Dalad. And the first week we did chapters one and two. Second week we did chapters three and four. Last week, which was the third lesson, I had wanted to do chapters five and six, but we did not succeed in doing that. We just did chapter five. Uh, the Mimer is eight chapters total. We're doing this in preparation for Yud Shvat <coughs> for the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, which is the anniversary of the passing of the 6th Rebbe and the anniversary of his son-in-law, the 7th Rebbe, our Rebbe, assuming leadership on the first anniversary of that passing. So we have today and we have next week. So uh, let's see how far we get. We're on chapter 6. And like I said, the whole mimer, the whole discourse is eight chapters total. So let's see. I don't think we'll finish today, but we uh, may get close. All right. Just a little review. We were speaking about last week. If you need to review the entire mimer from the very beginning, I recommend that you <coughs> watch the recordings. But a very brief review of where we're at. We're talking about the ways in which Hashem enlivens the world. And we're using some Hasidic terms, some technical terms. The terms that we were introduced to was Oyer, Chayas, and Koyach. Oyer is light, Chayos is life force, Koyach is power. And we explained the differences between Oyer and Chayas and Koyach. That Oyer and Chayas are Davik Bim Kairam, and Kayach is, is Nivdol Mim Kairai. I'll translate those words, uh, but if you really want to understand it properly, you need to watch the previous classes. That light and life force are a direct, a direct extension of their source, meaning they are traceable to their source in an unbroken fashion. Kayach is more something that moves from one thing to the other. Kayach means <coughs> power. It gets transferred, and then you don't really see its origin. You don't see where it comes from. In other words, there are two ways in which Hashem creates. One way is more traceable than the other. Right? Follow the paper trail. Where does it come from? Follow the money. Right? So you're looking at the world. It must come from somewhere. So <clears throat> the ways in which Hashem enlivens the world that's more traceable to the fact that it has a source is called Ur and Chayas, what's the difference between those two, we'll get to in a second. Then Koyach is more the power of creation that's invested uh, in everything that you don't trace it. It's not so apparent. Uh, difference between Ur and Chayas, we said one is Bislabshus, one is not Bislabshus. Bislabshus means investiture. So... Or is light. The, the, the sun shines into a room. It really doesn't care what's in the room. It's not working harder because there's more stuff in the room to light up. Because it's na the nature of its relationship with the stuff that it's illuminating is not one where there's real uh, any type of interaction. It just does what it does. It's like the professor comes in the class and gives the same lecture no matter who's sitting there. Okay. And then Chayas, the life force, gets invested in each individual thing, and it has the right sort of fit, the right voltage, so it doesn't blow the circuits. All right, at any rate. And then, in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, we introduced a fourth term called Shem, which is name. Name. What's name? Well, we said there's a well-known Kabbalistic concept, which is explained at length in Chassidus, that Hashem speaks the world into being. And we find this in, in Torah, in the 
and Bereshus in the Genesis account of creation. And the Lord spoke and said, let there be this, let there be that. So Hashem is speaking the world into being. <clears throat> we explain that as the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are 22 elemental energies or building blocks of creativity, which Hashem arranges in various permutations to create the, the formulae, which are the, the, like, you know, like water is H2O. Okay, so, you know, really, water is mem, yud, mem. You put an, a mem energy with a yud and then another mem, you get water, mayim, okay? So, we said regarding Shem, that that's the most hidden. Because when you, well, we gave, we gave the one very, like, practical example, which is just knowing the name of someone or something doesn't tell us a whole lot about its nature. And yet, we understand that its nature is very much the product of its Hebrew name. So the way that Hashem, and, you know what we're saying here? It's like on one hand the name is indicative of the essence of something. On the other hand, it's not very easy to see it. It's not very easy to reverse engineer it. The fact that Adam Arishan, the story in the Medrash about how the first man, Adam, was able to do this and see in the, he gives the example, he saw the shore, the ox, and said, oh, your name is shore. The fact that he was able to reverse engineer and identify the combinations of energetic building blocks and say its right Hebrew name, that was a, a feat that the angels could not accomplish. That's what it explains in the Medrash. The point is, when Hashem enlivens the world in the manner of giving things their names, that's really hidden. Really hidden. Because it's not apparent to us um, how, how that works on a practical level. It's not like knowing something's name really gives us a clear pathway to see. Oh, that's where it comes from in the Creator. Okay? Fine. So now we're on chapter 6. We're on chapter 6. Alright. And, and th uh, basically where we left off with is like this question, this lingering general question of like, okay, so in really broad terms, when Hashem creates the world, is it apparent or it's not apparent? Is it obvious that there's a creator? Is creation itself the clearest testimony to the existence of a creator? Or is it the opposite? Is it really, really, really hidden? And of course you all know that the answer to any question that is formulated in any Jewish study, where we say, is it this or is it this? The answer is, well, it's both. It's both. It's both. It's both. It's both. It's both. Okay? Obviously it's both. Because we all experience on a personal level where sometimes you look at the world and you're like, of course there's a God. And then sometimes you look at the world and it's really challenging. You're like, well, I have my faith, but you look at the world and it's like, where, where is God? And they're both true. In other words, that human reaction, that the fact that we have such extreme range in the human reaction is sort of a response to the fact that there is an extreme range in the objective phenomena which are occurring. The way in which Hashem enlivens the world, there is an aspect of it which is very obvious, and then there's an aspect of it which is very concealed. And that's what we're getting into. Okay, chapter 6. The point of, expl of explanation, meaning the concept that will help us to get to the bottom of this. The idea that 
creation is enlivened in a manner which we described as Shem, as the saying of its name, which is explained at length in Shari Yichad Ve'amunah, which is the second volume of Tanya. There's actually an advantage of Shem over Or. We explained before, Or is light. Like we said, if you see the light beam, you're going to be able to trace it to the light source. Because there's no such thing as removing the light beam from the light source. It's always going to be a straight line. If you see light... You're going to be able to trace it to it. Does everyone understand this Like this as a truism? <clears throat> if you see light, it has a source, and you will be able to trace it to its source, because if you cannot trace it to its source, if, it is, if the source is obstructed, then you're not seeing the light, right? If you see a shaft of sunlight, you're going to be able to find some sun. Okay, so that's the manner in which godliness, it's a metaphor for the manner in which godliness is very traceable. Shem, we said, is where it's not traceable at all, which would seem to be an inferior level. And yet, here we're saying there's actually an advantage <clears throat> to that manner of Hashem's relationship with the world. All right. Here's the concept. This is in accordance with the way that Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, explains the teaching of our sages, which is actually in the Medrash, Kehelis Rabba. The Holy One, blessed be He, traveled a journey of 500 years in order to acquire a name, specifically a name. Yeah, what does that mean? A journey of 500 years? What does it mean acquiring a name? This is mystical stuff, but let's hear what it says. Shesheresh Hashem Hulamayla Meshesheresh Ha'ayr That the source of the name is higher than the source of the light. In other words, you have to go far to go get it. We're not going to try to break this down too much and explain too much what it means. We're just taking the general concept here. Apparently, it's a, it's a product that you have to go to great lengths to acquire. Because light, although like we said earlier, it is attached to the luminary and it is similar to the luminary, Right? When you see a picture that was taken in candlelight, even if you can't see the candle flames, you can kind of tell it because the candlelight looks like candlelight. Or if you see a picture taken in sunlight, even if the sun's not in the shot, you can tell it's sunlight. That's what it means that the oir is me'en hamo'er. So if you see a creation that was made by God, you can kind of tell that it was made by God. So that's the advantage that oir, that light has, that it's davik bimkaydei and me'en hamo'er. It's attached to its source, and it's resembling, it resembles its source. Yet, it's just a ha'ara, it's just an emanation. The light is not the luminary. Sunlight is not the sun, is it? But a name is not like that. On one hand, a name is 
detached from its source, and therefore we call it in a state of concealment. And yet it is rooted in the essence. So what we're doing here is we're comparing like a pros and cons list, sort of. On one hand, Oer is Davik bim and Me'ein Hama'er. That's the advantage. That's the pro of Oer, of light. It's attached to its source. It resembles its source. On the other hand, Oer is not the Ma'er. The light is not the luminary. It's not the actual thing itself. It's a, a, a representation of it. It's an extension of it. Then you go look at, at Shem, at name. So that's detached from its source. It doesn't resemble its source to the extent where it's very hard to reverse engineer just by looking at the product, what the producer might be like. And yet, it's not just an approximation. It's not what we call a ha'ara, which literally means an emanation or a glow or a glimmer. It's actually the essence. It's the, the thing itself. And it actually draws down the thing itself. It's mamshich etzim. It draws down the thing itself. When you have sunlight, you don't have sun. You have something that tells you about the sun, but that's not the sun. So light is more representative of its source, but it's not its source. Name is obscured and it's hard to trace back, and yet, in a, in a certain way, it has a deeper relationship with the thing that it, and in, in, in where it originates, even than light has. Example, like we see with a person who fainted. He doesn't have the hispashtas he doesn't have the way the life force emanates out, meaning the way that it fills all of his capacities, but rather he's just left with the etzim chayas, with the essential core chayas, meaning he's not dead, he's alive, but the life force isn't flowing through him, so he's, he's in a state of, of, of faint. But if you call his name, you can restore his soul. I saw something very interesting, which I really appreciated having this experience because there are certain common uh, human experiences that are referenced in Chassidus. If you learn enough Chassidus, you'll find that they're common. This is one of them. It says if somebody faints, whenever it's explaining the concept of a name, this is not the only place in Chassidus that talks about the idea of a name. It says whenever, uh, whenever, not whenever, but very often when it talks about the concept of name, it'll say, like, you see that the name is attached to the essence of the person, meaning you can tap into, you can touch the, the core of the person, even when the external faculties are offline. And the it, the illustration of that is a person who has fainted, God forbid, you can get access to them, you can reach in there and wake them up by calling their name. The name has that 
has that power. You know the, the truckers, the CB drivers, they call their names, their handles. What's your handle? Good buddy, 10-4. So yeah, like a handle is how you like pick something up. So a name has that ability to like access that which is buried deep. And the example is using somebody's name to wake them up from a faint. So I never actually saw that done. Um, but I apparently, you know, it's a, apparently it's a common thing because I, I learned about it so many times in Chassidus, and Chassidus says it like, as an example, something that's really relatable. Chassidus isn't using it to make the concept less relatable, it's using that as a way of making the concept more relatable. It's being like, hey guys, I know this concept's very abstract, let me, give, let me give you an example of something we all relate to. But I'd never seen it done. Last Shavuos, I was in Florida, in Cooper City, Florida. Rabbi Pini Andrusier has a shul Agam there. Resort. What? The what? Agam, A-G-A-M. Agam, yeah, is that what it's called? I don't know. It might be called that. Yeah, that might be the name of like the resort. Yeah, but um, at that compound, it's like a whole big area, about a big property, and there's a shul there, and there's like a resort, there's a nursery school. There's also a boys yeshiva high school. So the boys were there, and the night of Shavuos, and everyone stays up all night, so I went to go hang out with them for a little while. And I was sitting at a febrang, and it was really, really late. And one of the boys was asleep. And another boy got up, and I wasn't sure what he was doing at first. I was kind of nervous, maybe he was up to no good, like, you know, like sleepover pranks. But he asked his teacher permission. He says, is it okay? And I'm thinking, oh, no. What is he asking? Is it okay? And he walked behind his friend, and he whispered. He just stood behind him. He didn't go right up in his ear. He just stood behind him, and he whispered the kid's name. He didn't say it loud. He just whispered, standing behind him. And he just whispered the kid's name, and the kid goes. And the kid standing behind him was like, I just wanted everyone to see how it works. I was like, wow, that's great. That really does work. The kid woke up just because his name was whispered within earshot. Okay, so that, thank God he wasn't, he didn't faint. He was just asleep because it was really late. But interesting concept. So we see that, let's continue inside. We said that. And that's because when you call out the name, you draw upon the essence. So what we're saying here is that Er is more indicative of the Ma'er. Light resembles and leads us to an understanding of the luminary, but the light is not the luminary. They're two distinct things. And one's the real thing, the other's the approximation. In contrast, Shem, which seems to be so much even more separate and hidden and detached, and yet it's the button that goes straight to the essence. So in a way, Shem is more connected to the origin and the essence than Or is. And you got why we're talking about this, because we're talking about different ways in which Hashem creates the world, and we're saying 
the, in, in a way, the manner in which Hashem creates the world, which is the most hidden, is actually the one that's the most direct connection. Now, more than this, more than this, meaning even a more compelling concept, we find that even calling the names of specific soul powers causes them to be drawn forth from their source, from their essential source, like it's explained, but Torah Ayer, in the, the Alter Rebbe's Maimorim and Torah Ayer, shall yidei shekoyrim esa'odna b'shem chochem v'chosid. If you call a person a chochem, or you call a person a chosid, mamshichim eskoyach ha'chochma v'chosid, then you elicit that person's chochma or chesed respectively, shalai. Mehalamam ho'atzmi from their essential state of concealment. In other words, the Alter Rebbe says, if you want a favor from somebody, don't say, come on, be a nice guy. You say, you're a nice guy. Yes, I am. Could you take me to the airport? I guess. I don't know why I'm doing this. Okay. When you name a specific quality, by the way, this is why Lushen Hara is so terrible. People say Lush and Hoda is terrible because you're spe- spreading rumors that aren't true. No, it is true. That's why it's so terrible. Because let's say somebody has a problem in a certain area and you talk about it, even if they don't know that you're talking about it, you're actually making it more real because you're by giving it its name, you're drawing it down into the world more. Okay, but here we're giving a positive example. A person has a quality. That quality is latent. It's unexpressed. How do, you, how do you call upon it? How do you summon that quality? By naming it. So if you call a person a chacham or a chassid, then they will act accordingly with chachma and with chassid. Name the quality and it actually causes it to manifest. So what do we see from this? What do we see from this? We see the power of the names that the names, the words for things, have a direct connection to the actual thing, even when it's buried deep and it needs to be drawn out. So, on one hand, Shem is much more concealed than Ur. On the other hand, Shem accesses much more essence than Ur. So when we're thinking about the way in which Hashem is enlivening the world, there are different ways of looking at it. There's one way that's, at first glance, more of a revelation of godliness, but it's limited to how much godliness it's revealing. That's called Ur. There's another way in which Hashem's enlivening the world where it's not as revealed. It's kind of hidden. It, it allows for agnosticism. It allows for someone to look at the world and wonder what its origin may be. And yet that aspect of creation is the one that if you look into it, will lead you more to the truth, the essence, the depth. I heard recently somebody, whoever was the quote from, 
was it? It's one of the early quantum physicists. He said, the first sip from the cup of natural sciences will fill you with apostasy. But if you continue drinking till the last drop, you will be full of the wonder of God. Something like that. I'm butchering the quote, but he probably said it in German anyway. So whatever, I'll just say that's my translation. At any rate, the idea that Hashem is hidden in the world, actually that manner of creation being set up the way it is, and it's hard for us to imagine any other way of creation being set up because this is the one that we take for granted, but the way in which Hashem is hidden in the world actually in a certain way gives us more access to God himself. Yeah? Is the expression of or or shame or its manifestation here based on God's decision of how he's revealing or based on our... You're asking, is it objective or subjective? Yeah, like can we draw in more shame or is it Hashem wants to reveal himself in order right now? Like, what's the relationship? I think they're both happening. I believe they're both happening. They may be not only happening simultaneously, but in one phenomenon. See, that's the thing when we talk about spiritual concepts. They're not physical, so they're not nailed down to be one or the other. And maybe one phenomenon is simultaneously both. I think the point of the mimer, I think, is that we should be more on the lookout for the shame way that Hashem expresses himself. You know, the, the red car experiment, it's a thought experiment, that if somebody uh, says to you, how many red cars did you see on your way to work this morning? Uh, I don't know, a few, I don't know. Can't say exactly, I don't know. Well, what if I told you I will give you $100 for every red car that you see on your way to work? All of a sudden, wow, I saw 20, you know, like here's a screenshot, and here's a photo I took of each one. Because when you are on the lookout for something, you see it. So I think the point here is it's always both all the time. We need to be on the lookout, though, for this aspect of it. We need to start, like, hunting for that. Just like why the rebel was very um, masculine in calling things, like, like a, for example, like, like a hospital to be named. Like the rebel was very into using positive language. Yes, the power of words, the power of language. Yes, yes, this, that's a related concept. Definitely it's a related concept. Okay. Valderich zehu lamayla. Lamaila means in spiritual terms. So we're, we're using metaphors right now in the human experience, but now he relates it back to the way Hashem actually creates. When you call Hashem the Chochem or the Chosid. So we're saying if you call a person a Chochem or a Chosid, they become more that way. You know about the famous Rosenthal effect. Yeah, you heard that? The, this guy Rosenthal, Jewish psychologist. You ever heard of a Jewish psychologist? Okay, have you ever heard of a non-Jewish psychologist? Okay, so this guy Rosenthal, he had this theory about children rising to expectations. So he went to this uh, public school in California, and they gave everybody an aptitude test, and then they randomly selected a few kids, totally randomly, and they told the teachers, these kids are going to blossom this year. 
There was no basis for saying that. They just randomly said, these kids are going to blossom. These kids are potential geniuses. They're, they're really talented. There was no basis for it. They just said it randomly. At the end of the year, they gave everybody the same aptitude test. And those kids who, who their teachers were told, these kids are going to blossom this year. What do you think happened at the end of the year? They all blossomed this year. Why? Because that's what the teachers were told. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Self-fulfilling In this case, it wasn't even self-fulfilling. It was the way somebody else looks at you. So if you think that somebody is a certain way and you say they are that way, it actually makes them more that way. And now we're saying, do you know that this even works with Hashem? Yeah. That... When you call Hashem a Chachm or a Chassid, it arouses that Hashem should emanate light into Chachma. Maybe it's not into, maybe it's more through. In, through Chachma or through Chassid, when you refer to different attributes of Hashem, obviously the attributes are already there, but when you invoke them or evoke them, then that's the way that they present themselves. Listen to this, this is trippy. Before creation, there was no chachma v'chasid. Gam behelam, not even in a concealed state. Chachma and chasid are lenses through which Hashem presents himself. Before creation, when there was no other which we all know is not a true other because it's all Hashem, but you know, there's the othering of himself, which is the phenomenon we know of as creation. But before that, so Hashem had no one to present himself to, so to speak, so Chochman Chesed didn't exist. That's why we explain sometimes and he says, sometimes, footnote 65, he tells you where to look. And he says, look in Bossi Lagani, um, chapter 17. And also in the year where that chapter of Lagani was explained at length, which is Tavshin Chav Zion. That names can access a level beyond the Eser Sviras Hagnuzais. I'm sure everyone here knows what the Sphiris Agnuses are, so I don't have to explain. Okay, you get my humor. All right. So, Sphiris, I'm assuming you do know. The ten Sphiris, the emanations, meaning the different ways Hashem relates to or interfaces with the creation. Chachma, Bina, and Das are the intellectual. Then you have Chesig, Vurit, Tveris, Yesaid are the emotional. Then you have Malchus, which is the final delivery. So those are the ten spheroids. And those building blocks are reiterated on every level in every world. There's the ten spheroids of Atsilos and of Briya and of Yitzira and Asiya. Before what we call Sederishtalslis, the chain-like progression of worlds, meaning prior to Atsilos, you have proto-spheroids called Eser Spheris Hagnuzais. You know what a Gniza is? Gniza. You ever heard the term Gniza? Seamus. It's called Gniza. Why? What does Gniza mean? Buried. Buried. Yeah, very good. So, Esther Sphiris Agnuzais 
are like the buried treasure, like the, 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 the mine, you know, when you go and you dig into the mine and you pull out the, the, the iron ore or whatever it is. Um, imagine there are these spheroids. Spheroids, the whole point of them is for emanation, it's for an interface. So they really are a phenomenon, inherently a phenomenon of creation. Yet there are these protospheroids before creation. So that's a really, really high level. It's like the latent potential spheroids before spheroids. Aster spheroids So what we say here is with a name, you're actually able to tap in deeper or higher, however you want to look at it, than the Aster spheroids Because before creation, there was no Chochmah and Chassid. So now, what are you doing? You're asking Hashem to manifest Himself in various ways. Where are you reaching to? You're reaching to Hashem before those different lenses are put in place and asking that from, you're speaking to the essence of Hashem. Don't get so freaked out when I say you're speaking to the essence of Hashem because we do it all the time. Every time you make a bracha, it's a baruch ata, blessed are you. Why do you say you? Because next you say Hashem, which is a name, and then you say Elokeinu, which is even another name, and in fact it's a, in a certain way a lower name, and then say Melech HaOlem, King of the World, which is a title, an even lower name. But Ato, you, is Hashem's essence, whoever you are, above names. So when we use these names, what we're doing is we're going to a place higher than Eser Sfiris HaGnuzais. Val Aches Kama V'Kama V'Negei L'Shem HaOdom so how much more so when you talk about a person's name, Ruvain, Shimon, Shalomayla Yesem Hashem Chochem V'Chosid, those are even higher than the names Chochem and Chosid. He doesn't explain what that means, so you have to kind of just figure that out, but referring to Chochman Chassid, I guess those are archetypes. When you refer to a Ruvain or a Shimain, I guess what we're saying is that's going even deeper than Chochem and Chosid. I guess more specific, yeah. When you call somebody by their name, you draw down the essence. So again, going back to the idea, Oer is Me'ein HaMoer. Light is indicative of the luminary, and yet it's not the luminary. Sunlight is not sun. Candlelight is not a candle. You can't get burnt on candlelight. Shame seems so much more removed from the thing that it's naming. And yet, through the name, we're able to access really deep, like the deepest potential the unarticulated, atten- uh, the unarticulated potential, and to get it to come to us in a certain way. Now we can understand, accordingly, why the life force, the godly life force that's in the created beings, who is also in a manner of name, as explained in second volume of Tanya. In other words, what do we need this Shem thing for? If we have Oer, 
What do we need Shem for? It seems inferior. No, actually, Shem does something that Oyer does not. Even though Shem's name is more hidden, because there's an advantage to Shem that is not present in Oyer. Oyer resembles its source, but it's not its source and doesn't give us access to the source. Shem gives us access to the source. That light, although it resembles the luminary, is only a glimmer, a representation, a copy. And remember, we had that other level called Chayus. We had Oyer and we had Chayus. And how much more so Chayus, the Bechinus Oyer, the life force, or the life force aspect of light, which is in every created being. First of all, it's only the Oyer HaKav. Oyer HaKav means the line. What's the line? It's the uh, supply of energy that was re-injected into the cleared out space that was produced by the original Tzimtzum. And it's not even the Kav, it's a glimmer of a glimmer of a glimmer of the Kav. That's the advantage of Shem, of name, that it goes to the core. Chayus is a glimmer of a glimmer of a glimmer. It's an approximation. It's a representation. It gives you a, a nice indication of where it comes from, but it's not its origin. It's a representation of the origin. You walk into the kitchen, you smell the brisket. You're not eating brisket. You're smelling it. Shem is an interesting thing because on one hand it seems much more detached and removed than air, but it's a way of accessing the real thing itself, the depths, the core of the thing itself. In other words, the identity, the real identity, not just the way that something expresses itself, but what something really is. So in other words, like if you want to know Hashem through his creation, do you want to know him, will you get to know him better through the Oyer or through the Shem? So, what does it mean getting to know Hashem through the air? It means you see a world, it's full of life, obviously there's something moving it. Obviously there's a source. That just the fact that the world exists means that there is some source of existence. And there's the fact that the world is animated means there's some animating force. Is that, is that what? The significance of them, them being like Hashem, like the name? Well, that's another, that's, a, that's another thing. It could be related. Everything's related. But the idea is you can look at the world and the world can be an indication of Hashem because you see the world is, is alive. So there must be a life force. There's a much deeper but more concealed way of relating to God through his creation. And it requires more investigative work. It, in, it requires more diligence and more curiosity because the whole concept of Shem is hidden. 
and you, 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 you could easily overlook it. You could easily not even follow it to its source. And you can look at the world and say it's just detached, it's just ontologically independent, it's just going, it exists already. And yet, that's not true. There is no unconditional absolute existence other than unconditional absolute existence. Is that a truism? Is that circular logic? Uh, to an extent, but that's what happens when we hit the ceiling. When everything else is an effect, or an effect of an effect, or an effect of an effect of an effect, then when we speak about the cause which has no uh, cause before it, which is not an effect of any cause, then you sort of do get to a point where you say absolute reality is absolute reality. It is what it is. It is defined by itself. Therefore, what is Hashem, or at least one way of us wrapping our minds around the concept of Hashem, absolute existence. He who exists just because he exists. Nothing gives rise to him. His existence is not dependent or conditional. He exists because that is existence. Now somehow, we're able to relate to that concept by looking at the world Hashem made. He doesn't explain it here explicitly, but I'll, I'll inject a little bit of explanation just to, to help us. This is based on actually the first Basilagani, not the first first, not the, the, the Rebbe Reyatze's Basilagani from Tavshin Yud, but the, the Rebbe's Basilagani from Tavshin Yud Aleph. And the Rebbe brings this from the Mitla Rebbe, but the idea that the physical world is a clearer view of God than, than the heavens are, which is really counterintuitive. But like he explains, the heavens are a glow, a glimmer. The physical world is this strange paradox. <coughs> because it looks like it's ontologically independent, because it looks like it just runs on its own, the heavens don't look that way. In the heavens, you see that everything exists and you trace it to its source. You don't see a sun ray without being able to follow it up to the sun. That's the way the heavens are. But in the physical world, things appear detached. And yet in their detachment, their, their apparent detachment, they actually not only resemble, but represent the nature of God's existence, which is that His existence has no antecedent. His existence is ontologically independent. So the fact that the physical plane exists in a way that appears ontologically independent is the clearest representation of the manner of God's existence. So <coughs> we're talking about different ways of viewing God in the world. There are ways where it's more apparent, more readily apparent that there's a God, but it doesn't get us as deep when we follow that path. Then there are ways where at first glance it could even lead you to believe, God forbid, that the world exists independently. And yet, 
if you follow it and you go to the depth, that is where you will glimpse the essence. That's what we call Shem, yeah? Yeah. But yeah. When you, a five-year-old asks you, "What does that mean?" You're an intuitive five-year-old. Or where's Hashem? A rant like about that song. It's, it's we're teaching them an abstract concept, but it's hard for them to wrap their head around it. Maybe it's hard for anyone to wrap their head around it. Right. So the the point here is for us to understand it better and relate to it better. And when a kid asks you, where is Hashem? And you say, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. That, that those aren't just words from a song. Yeah. Let's do, chapter 7 is very short. Let's try to do that. Let's connect this concept that Rebbe says with something we learned earlier in the Mimer about how, remember we said when the Jews came out of Mitzrayim, they were called Tzivus Hashem, the, the army of God. And that's connected to the concept of redeeming the sparks, that they were tapping into the godly energy that's hidden in the physical things. And that's why they left with the wealth of Egypt. And there's a concept of, remember, redeeming the sparks, 288 sparks that fell, and then they came out with the Rav, Reish Base, 202, leaving 86, which is Bigamatria Hateva. Okay. Shezeu al derech inyin Hashem. This is actually similar to the concept of Shem, of name. That's for me? Okay, why not? I'll make a bracha. Do I seem like I'm thirsty? Okay. Is it just water? What is it? Seltzer? So. Yeah, it's flat seltzer. That's what it is. I can taste the taste of seltzer, but it's got no carbonation. All right. Um, we're going to connect this idea of the sparks of godliness that are concealed in the physical creation with the concept of Shem. Shem even though they're in a state, what we call Shem, which is more hidden, they have an advantage over the life force, which is called Ur, which is called light. Which, this is specifically the way to get to the depth, to get to the core. This is also what the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Chabad, explained in a mimer. It starts with the verse, B'Shalach Pare Es Ha'am, that uh, Pharaoh sent out the nation. Why does it say, Es Ha'am, he sent out the nation? It should say, Es Yisrael, he sent out Yisrael. Umau, Es Ha'am, Lashen why does it say he sent out the nation? We know that the word Am has a negative connotation. Oymais means dim coals. You know, like not the brightest bulb in the box. So this is like not the brightest coal in the in the oven. In halacha, they talk about it like cooking on Shabbos and dim coals, glowing coals, dim coals. So om, um, when we call the, the the people the um, it actually has like it's kind of like saying the rabble, the masses, the unwashed masses, the lowest common denominator. 
Mavosh al Yisrael begolus mitzrayim ksiv vizartioli ba'aretz. Now it says about the Jewish people in the Egyptian exile. I planted them. Hashem says, "I planted them for me in the earth." Nobody plants a measure of seed without expecting to reap many more measures. Meaning planting is an investment. You don't plant and then get back the same amount that you planted. You plant and you get back much more. We know that Torah and mitzvahs are called zriya. They're called planting, sowing. Not sowing like sowing your button on your coat, but sowing like sowing seeds. The mitzvahs are planted in the Jews. Shinemar bohem kitiu atemli eretz chefetz. They shall be for me a land of desire, a desirable land. The Jewish people should be for me a desirable land. And like the Baal Shem Tov's teaching on that, Every single member of the nation has treasure houses of great character traits that are like the treasure that's found in the earth. It's only needed to reveal them, to unearth them. There's a famous story. People get mad when I tell this story and I don't say the name of the person. So I'll say the name of the person. Just It's a polarizing figure. So what? As a teacher, people think I'm trying to conceal stuff. As a teacher, I don't like to distract people. I have a hard enough time with that already because the occupational hazard of the teaching is the more boring you are, the more you have people's attention, the more interesting you are, the more you spark their creativity and then they get distracted. So when you mention polarizing figures, then people don't hear the story. They just start thinking about all their feelings they already have about that person. So anyway, Zalman Schachter, used to be, by the way, when I grew up as a kid and my mother would sing to us Ufaratzda, where did she learn that? She learned it from Zalman Shachter when he was a camp rabbi at Olin Sang in uh, Wisconsin, summer camp. At any rate, so he did that. I had that. Okay. He was a Hillel rabbi on campus at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. And he brought a group of college students to the Rebbe in 770. And one of the kids, like in a very like not respectful way, was like, what's the point of a Rebbe? What's a Rebbe good for? And so Zalman Schechter wanted to jump in the ground. He was so embarrassed. The Rebbe said, very much like taking it in stride, the Rebbe wasn't disturbed at all by it, and said, uh, well, I can tell you about my Rebbe, meaning my father-in-law. He said, what's a Rebbe good for? A Rebbe is a soul geologist. Well, what's a geologist? The mining companies hire geologists because they study the earth. You know, there's a lot of uh, natural resources in the ground, but it's not just anywhere. You've got to know what to dig for and where to dig. So the mining companies hire the geologists to tell them what to dig for and where to dig. So that's what a Rebbe is. There's treasures within every single person. But 
A rabbit tells you what to dig for and where to dig. Okay. So, we all have these treasures within us. And this is referring to the way we are down here, meaning not up in heaven, your soul has treasures. No, down here, soul in body, you have these hidden treasures within you. And that's how you cause the growing. You come down, you're planted, so to speak, in the physical world, but that's how the treasures come out, and that's how you actually get more. When you put the seed in the ground, not only is that the, not the demise of the seed, but it actually triggers that the seed should grow many times over. So you take the soul with all of its talents and potentials, rip it out of heaven, which is traumatizing for it. It does not want to leave heaven, but you put it in the physical world, and now all the greatness that the soul already has, its treasures, actually sprout forth with a yield many times over what it started with. Similarly, when the Jews were implanted in the Egyptian exile, that's another type of planting. So, being planted just in embodiment is a type of being planted. What's the difference between being buried and being planted, right? <laughs> it depends the purpose, it depends the outcome, okay? So, being placed in the gullus is another type of being buried slash, slash, buried slash planted. Uh, but it was all for the sake of greater growth. Hainu b'shvil in other words, through the refinement of the sparks that were in Egypt that were previously deeply concealed. So all these incredible sparks of creative energy, of godly energy, they were in the world, but nobody could tap into them. The Egyptians had that physical wealth. They weren't using it for any good purposes. The sparks were in all that stuff that the Egyptians were using, and there was nothing productive about it. Then through being in exile, and it was a terrible, brutal exile, they came out, the Jewish people came out with those sparks and were able to tap in and get those hidden sparks of energy and elevate them to their purpose. It was only through this experience of being plunged into exile that we were able to come out with that profit, with that, with that benefit. And this is Dafka, the difference between Shem and Ur, that the thing that's buried more deeply, concealed more deeply, ends up being the way to access the greater revelation of the source. So the fact that Hashem is revealed in the world, okay, Hashem is revealed in the world. You see a world and that makes you know that there's a God. Great. But it doesn't go deeper than that, or much deeper, or incomparably deeper. But you see a world that looks like there's no God, God forbid. Like, like I said before, the first sip from natural science will make you an apostate, right? But keep drinking, because the last drop will fill you with wonder of God. Look at the nature of the world that appears ontologically independent. And when you realize the logical impossibility for the physical world to be ontologically independent, and yet it appears ontologically independent, this will lead you to a greater appreciation of the essence of God than meditating on the way that God is revealed in the world. So the thing that's the most hidden and buried actually ends up yielding the greatest revelation. Okay.